When he got on a plane in Portland, Oregon last night, he was just another passenger who gave his name as D.A. Cooper. But today, after hijacking a Northwest Airlines jet, ransoming the passengers in Seattle, then making a getaway by parachute somewhere between there and Reno, Nevada, the description on one wire service, master criminal. Bill Curtis reports. 36 passengers got off the jetliner in Seattle last night, left aboard four crew members and the hijacker, dressed in a business suit demanding $200,000 and carrying a plane briefcase which he told the crew held explosives. With the full ransom collected from Seattle banks and four parachutes aboard, the plane headed for Reno. It took three and a half hours, slow for a jet, but the hijacker had given detailed flight instructions. The rear stairwell was open all the way. It arrived at Reno in shreds. The crew, here being debriefed by the FBI, was told to fly low over Oregon's flatlands with the flaps down. The speed dropped to 200 miles per hour. Somewhere, the hijacker parachuted away with the money. The crew had little to say. Oh, uh, we gave the information to the authorities, and uh, we just don't want to discuss it any further. Have you been told by the FBI not to discuss? No, they handle their investigation, and uh, my company would rather have it released through them. Tina, were you with the, with the rest of the crew during, during the, the flight after you left the ground the last time? Yes, I went up to the cockpit. None of you were within sight of the hijacker, right? Right. We already talked about it, and the captain, you know, still oh, uh, How did you surmise that he was not on the plane when he landed in Reno? Well, a search was made of the plane immediately uh, after landing. As we understood it, he could have gotten off as the plane taxied before it came up here. How did the crew no know way. he wasn't on when it touched no ground? Way. The crew couldn't know that, but we have the airport covered. Are the authorities now searching for the Snow covers the mountains in Northern California and Nevada, a hostile terrain for any parachute drop, especially at night. Police believe he left the 727 in the flatlands of Oregon or Washington, but they are still looking in four states, even around the airport. Authorities began their search here, thinking the hijacker may have jumped off at the end of the runway as the plane touched down. But the problem is more complex. A daring parachute escape from a flying 727 somewhere between Reno and Seattle, Washington. Bill Curtis, CBS News. Welcome back to Conspiracy Club. I'm Tom. And I'm Neil. Why don't you stop being so angsty? What? I'm going to ground you. We're, bo- <laughs> We're both wearing hoods right now, if you can like imagine it. Yeah, we look like gang members. We both have Skittles, too. <laughs> what? So... No, we have to stay away from, you know? So, this week, we are continuing on our streak of delivering on what we promised. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I mean, literally, I did it, and then you're finishing up. Because usually, you never, like, deliver. Yeah, it's, it's, it is me that, that yeah, always no, drops it, the ball. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I don't know why you what you're doing, but, yeah, I don't know if it's your bit. But you never do delivery. You're not a deliverer. You're the opposite of a deliverer. I can never work for the postal Carmelone, service. You would Actually, be I the, probably could. If you were in the NBA, you'd be the anti-delivery man. You wouldn't even be Carmelo. You'd be the anti-him. You're white, can't deliver stuff. Couldn't be a mailman. You knew that wasn't an option for you. And that's all they have in Allegan. Mail? Mm-hmm. And meth, of course. Oh. If it makes you feel any better. Well, I do deliver that, so. you damn right you do. You look like it. <laughs> Reefy T, right? Was that is that hey. what it was? Were you bringing that back too? No comment. 
So this week, change your name to and repeat. probably next week. Well, yep. definitely next week, and we'll probably just do two episodes. We're yeah. doing DB Cooper. All right, the infamous uh, Skyjacker. <laughs> That's my nickname in high school, by the way. Why? <laughs> I don't know. No, what was? What did you do? Anyways, you pull out some photos of Lola e- and say, <clears throat> "Let me get in the sky and jack something." Oh no! You think he was in the Millionaires? Wait. Mile High Club? The Millionaire's Club? (laughs) (laughs) Dallas Buyers Club? That's where I was. You kind of look like Jared Leto in a dress. (laughs) Just a smidge. He's a pretty attractive man. I'll take that. Allegedly. All right. On the eve of Thanksgiving, November 24th, 1971, a man entered Portland International Airport and bought a ticket on Northwest Orient Airlines for a one-way trip on Flight 305. The man identified himself as Dan Pitbull. Cooper. Is oh. Mr. Worldwide? Yeah, I thought he was like Mr. Three Hundred Five. Is getting him? He should get a plane that is Three Hundred Five. Like that should be retired for Pitbull only. Yeah, just yeah. I see only one, and it only goes for Pitbull. He probably has one. It was probably a private jet. He's in a new animated movie, by the way. So he's what's one of the lead voices. And what? What's the movie? Something about Ugly Town. <laughs> no, literally, that's what it's called. Like, it's something ugly in there. Okay, I believe you. But it's, it's, it looks gross. All the singers are in it, though. You, Dialupa, De, De what? Dialupe? Dialupa? Dialupe. Okay. Yep. So the man identified himself as Dan Cooper and paid in cash for what would be a 30 minute flight. How much was it? Uh, I don't know. Very little. Because it means $25, $20. So he was flying Spirit? Because you got to understand, if he's flying Spirit, it's a different vibe. Like Spirit Airlines? Yeah. He's flying Northwest Orient. Oh, okay. Because it's a different Which vibe. Which I don't even know if that exists if anymore. He, yeah. If he, if he was flying Spirit, there's not much to steal on Spirit. Well, we'll get to it. So Cooper boarded the aircraft, a Boeing 727-100, and took his seat in the back of the passenger cabin. He ordered a bourbon and soda and lit a cigarette. It was a different time, obviously. Yeah. He yeah, lit, they he lit a cigarette on the plane. Yeah. Um, his physical that. appearance was described by others to be a man in his mid-40s, around six feet tall. He was wearing a light raincoat, loafers, a dark suit, a collared white shirt, a black clip-on tie, and a mother-of-pearl tie pin. With him, he also carried a black briefcase. So how old did they say he was again? Mid-40s. So he couldn't tie his own tie? Well, we know that he jumps out, so I'll just say, I think that he had a clip on because then he just pulled off easily and then yeah, jumped from the he plane. He didn't want to jump and be like, oh, my tie's on my face yeah. type of thing. That's my thought. So he looks like he could, every... He, he could just like clip-ons. Every white guy in New York. Yes. That's wow. a huge, huge amount of people. Flight 305 started in D.C. and stopped in Minneapolis, Great Falls, Missoula, and Spokane before stopping in Portland to pick up Cooper. At which point, it was about one-third full. Shortly after taking off, Cooper handed a note to flight attendant Florence Schnaffner. Is it like a bus? Schaffner. That's excuse me, what? Is it like a bus? It's stopping everywhere and picking people? Well, it's like, you know how they do like... Oh, okay. Connect, what is yeah. it, connecting flight? I don't, yeah. I don't know. I've never flown, so... <laughs> uh, Schaffner. Uh, so he hands a note to Florence Schna- uh, Schaffner. Uh, insert... Playboy Cardi saying broke boy right here. Yeah, true. Yeah. True though. Um, Florence is sitting in the jump seat, uh, which is like one of those seats that the flight attendants sit on that just like comes out of the wall. Yeah. 
Um, assuming it was just a phone number from another desperate businessman, she dropped it into her purse without looking at it. Cooper then leaned in and whispered to the unsuspecting flight attendant, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. Hey, look at that goddamn note. Because I have a damn bomb. It's unknown what was really on the note because Cooper later took it back. So he's like, give me that shit back. Yeah. Now. Is that how you think his voice sounds? Yeah. I, I envision him as a Southerner, conserv- well, not conservative, but fiscally conservative person. Libertarian, okay. Who's like, look, while you look in that goddamn box right now, you look at that note, you see what it says? I have a fucking bomb. <laughs> wow. He's actually much more polite than that. Oh, he says, excuse me, madam. It's just a country boy here, Dan. Uh, D, B, as I'm known. Uh, you know, look at that card. I have a bomb. Don't get, don't get nervous. I'm. Look, I already am nervous. Don't get nervous, cause you're cute. So don't get nervous. I'm just letting you know I have a bomb. And this could go left. It could, definitely could. This could go left, cause I don't give a fuck about my life. But- <laughs> But after reading it... I care about yours. Cooper tells the flight attendant to sit next to him. Mm. So he's like, you know what? Sit your fine ass right here. (laughs) Oh, God. Don't you walk past me. She did as she was told before asking to see the bomb. (laughs) Cooper opened the briefcase long enough for her to get a peek at eight red cylinders attached to wires coated with red uh, insulation and a large cylindrical battery. Cooper then stated his demands. $200,000 $200,000 in, quote, negotiable American currency. So he's like, look here, Hasa. I need 200000 But it has to be negotiable. Four parachutes. Four parachutes. And a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel upon arrival. And a fuel truck. And your number. <laughs> that one wasn't on there, but he's probably thinking about he it. He probably put that on. That's, they couldn't include that. She didn't want to. She's like, I might call him later. <laughs> that's where she that's where he is now. She's with him. Schaffner relayed these instructions to the pilots, and when she returned, Cooper was wearing dark sunglasses. So he puts on his sunglasses. He's like, Come on back here, madam. So now Sonny Bravo, actually. So he's like, now nah, you definitely gotta give me that goddamn ring. I mean that number right now. I had to jump out of this plane, so I need it immediately. Before I jump out the window, what's your name? <laughs> the pilot, William Scott, contacted the Seattle-Tacoma Airport Air Traffic Control, which then told local and federal authorities. The other passengers, of which there were only 36, were told that their arrival in Seattle would be delayed due to minor technical difficulties. He's like, hold on, bitch. I never said to snitch. <laughs> hold on. Well, they got to get the $200,000. Oh, okay, okay. okay. Um, wait, 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 wait. So, we don't have that on board. Okay, so his plan is to land, then give him the money, and then keep moving? Yep. All right. Schaffner relayed these instructions to the pilots, and when she returned, Cooper was wearing dark sunglasses. I already said that part. Um, yeah, yeah. So, that he gives the instructions. Um, they contact the authorities, um, and Northwest Orient's president, Donald Nyrup, authorized the payment of the ransom and ordered employees to fully cooperate with Cooper's demands. The aircraft circled Puget Sound for around two hours to allow Seattle police and the FBI enough time to assemble Cooper's demands and gather emergency personnel. They don't have 200000 just ready? 
Um, you mean like North Australian doesn't and cash? No. No, I'm saying like the FBI just got that shit sitting around. No. So they can go like, hey, they couldn't just run to a bank and be like, we need two hundred thousand now. Do you think a bank has two hundred thousand dollars? Where is it? Where are they at? I guess it's in Seattle, but. Yeah, it's in Seattle. But there, I don't think any one bank would have that $200,000 and a Starbucks coffee now. It's also probably some stuff with like the reserve. You can't just like take, just gouge one bank for $200,000. You know, that's tough to do when it's raining. What? Because it's raining. It always rains in Seattle. It is also raining in this story. So it's probably, see, I told you, Seattle's always raining. I always wanted to live there because of that. Same. No, you didn't. Schaffner later recalled that Cooper was familiar with the terrain below, at one point stating, quote, looks like Tacoma down there, as the aircraft crossed over it. He also correctly mentioned that McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive from the airport. So he looked out the window, he was like, God damn, I think that's Tacoma. Yeah. That's going to be the place me and you get married, Miss Schaffner. Oh, my God. I don't think so. Um, despite being a domestic terrorist... Schaffner said he was calm, polite, and well-spoken. Another flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, agreed with uh, Schaffner's points, adding that, quote, he wasn't nervous, end quote. And in fact, quote, he seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all the time. He's like, Miss Schaffner, I'm not nervous. Why are you nervous, baby? At this point, he orders a second bourbon and water, and he pays his drink tab. He paid his tab? If you don't think him and Miss Schaffer are together Listen, now, because I would be one of He orders that this. second drink, pays his tab, and then he even attempts to give Schaffner the change. Oh, wow. What a dog. And offered to request meals for the flight crew. Really? Yeah, during See, their stop in I Seattle. I would have leaned over and been like, hey, DB, you want to go in this bathroom real quick? No, 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 no. That's what I would have did. Uh, FBI agents obtained the money from several Seattle banks, $10,020 bills, most with serial numbers beginning with the letter L, indicating issuance by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, and most from 1936A or 1969 series. Nice. The FBI also made a microfilm of each bill. Why? So that they could track it. They knew which bills they gave him. He's not going to, he's not going to use the bills. But then why would he ask for them? Because he's just going to take them and then switch them to a new currency. Exactly. Then they can track. Oh, then they can track it. Oh, he went here. What? Like, where are they? Tra- like, they're tracking the bills or they're tracking, like, him using the bills? The bills. And they, they we'll, we'll talk about it in a minute, but they even request that he, uh, or they even request from foreign governments um, if they have any of the bills. That's another thing. So they, like, had no every single bill. And if it was ever used in a place that I guess was cooperating with them, then they could find it. All right, so what if it was used in a place that wasn't corrupt? Then we'd never then you're know. shit out of the luck. Cooper rejected the military-issue parachutes offered by McCord, demanding civilian-issue parachutes with manually operated ripcords, which the Seattle police obtained from a local skydiving school. At 5.24 p.m., Cooper was told that his demands had been met, and at 5.39, the aircraft landed at Seattle-Tacoma Airport. It was over an hour after sunset, and Cooper instructed pilot William Scott to taxi the jet to an isolated, brightly lit section of the apron and close all the window shades to deter snipers. North of, Is nor- everyone still on the plane? Uh, yes. Damn, nor- so nor- they had to be confused as fuck. Northwest Orient's Seattle operations manager, Al Lee, approached the aircraft in civilian clothes so that Cooper wouldn't accidentally mistake his airline uniform for a police uniform. He delivered the items demanded, or the items demanded, the money and the parachutes to Tina Mucklow via the stairs. Once Cooper received it, he ordered all the passengers, Schaffner, 
and another flight attendant, Alice Hancock, to leave the plane. <laughs> You're so dumb. I'm just saying if Ali or Al Lee. Yes. Hancock. Schaffer. Just think about this. D. B. Cooper. Man, if there's so many jokes that <laughs> sixth grade me can make right now. Well, while people getting shafted. Okay, you know what? And handcuffed. Well, I'm leaving this one. Uh, while refueling. And penis grabbed. What? <laughs> <laughs> Are you on crack? A little bit. While refueling, Cooper told the remaining crew like his Bobby plan. Brown. A southeast course uh, towards Mexico City at the minimum airspeed possible uh, at the maximum altitude. He also specified that the landing gear remain deployed, the wing flaps be lowered to 15 degrees, and the cabin remain unpressurized. This motherfucker is a Harvard graduate. I'm just going to make a guess. Cooper was told that the flight path would require another stop for fuel, <gasps> and after discussing options, they agreed on Reno, Nevada as the next stop. This low bump's dead. With the, plane's near, with the plane's rear exit door open and its staircase extended, Cooper directed takeoff. Northwest objected, saying that it was unsafe to take off with the staircase deployed. But Cooper told them it was safe, um, but gave up, telling them that he would just lower it once they were in the air. An official from the Federal Aviation Administration requested to meet with Cooper on the aircraft, but he was denied. Why would he want to? Why Why would Cooper be like, yeah, dude, come on, what's me? Well, he wouldn't. I think it was just like, well, maybe he'll say yes. Would he think he's that suave? Well, maybe. He's not stupid, clearly. If he's coming out here with, you know, if you just angle the plane just a little bit, kind of tilt it that way, about 35 degrees for me. <laughs> Can you do that? He changed from a southern gentleman to somebody else. Oh, sorry. Uh, excuse me, Miss Schaffer. Come on over here real quick. Uh, bring that ass this way. Oh my god! Uh, you She's not even just... on the plane anymore. All right, uh, it's Tina. Tina. Ooh, wait, Tina. If you if you don't get over here, why don't you start rolling, rolling down this river? And get over here right now. And if you can just you know, angle the wings a little bit, about thirty five degrees for me. A nice little southern gent like myself, so I can you know. I just prefer that one. Can you also pull everything down? Because I know you guys got snipers. You know, the fun thing about me is I, I do my homework. You know, don't let the, the tone, the southern tone fool you. We have books in the south. It's not just the Bible. So you have to understand, Miss Tina. You put that bad boy down okay. so I don't get shot. Well, he doesn't get shot. Oh, uh, well, of course, because I'm a smart son bitch. So why would I get shot? The refueling process was delayed because of a vapor lock with the fuel tanker truck's pumping mechanism. In the words of upcoming rapper in like 30 years or probably 50, uh, about 60 years. You don't know him yet. His name is Blueface. Yeah, all right. Is that it? Yeah, that's all <laughs> I had to say. Yeah, all right. Um, so That's Co a lie. Cooper becomes suspicious. I would too. Nevertheless, he allowed a second truck to continue, and then a third truck after the second one ran out of fuel. Wait, so the, these trucks are f like uh, falling? They're fueling. Uh, Lies release Grover Clinton. Really? Yeah. R.I.P. At around 7.40 p.m., the plane took off with only five people on board. Pilot Scott, co-pilot Ratichak, Flight attendant Mucklow, flight engineer H.E. Anderson, and Cooper himself. Okay, so you can't have two people on the same flight that's names are single letters and then a last name. 
Well, yo. So he's on his side. So D, okay. They're on the same team. Two F-106 uh, fighter aircraft were deployed from McCord and followed the plane, one above and one below, out of Cooper's sight. Three more soon followed. After takeoff, Cooper told Mucklow to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and to remain there with the door closed. As she complied, she noticed Cooper tying something around his waist. At around 8 p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit, indicating that the stairs had been lowered. He looks at her, he's like, look here, baby. I'm going to let you know right now, here's my number. You're not going to see me because I'm going to, you know, scoot, scoot out this plane. But when I land, give me a call. So he's just going to reveal his identity like that. That's interesting. Hey, you don't look. The the number's assigned to DB. It's not assigned to me. I'm a Southern gen. I think <laughs> some people don't think. Like in the future, there's going to be this dumbass named Tom. He doesn't think <laughs> at all. He would think I would just give my number up like that, but I'm DB. So when Dick the, in the butt Cooper. <laughs> oh my god. What did you do before you came here? The same thing I always do. I don't even want to know, actually. I changed my mind. So they get the warning light. Um that watch the, you outside your house. That the stairs have been lowered. <laughs> the crew's offer of assistance via their intercom was refused. Um and then they noticed a change of air pressure. <sighs> That meant that the door was open. At 10.15, the aircraft's door, uh, the aircraft stairs were still deployed, and the plane landed in Reno. Emergency personnel surrounded the plane and entered, conducting an armed search for their hijacker. Is it Reno in Vegas? Yeah, well, it's in Nevada. So he jumps out the plane. Sometime between Reno and Portland. I know what he did. Or Seattle, I guess. I know what DP did. He went, had a night on the town, and then kept it pushing. So they find nothing on the plane. You know, if the one thing I'm interested in is why wouldn't he have it go? I guess it would have took longer, because I would have been like angle the plane towards like that Mexico area, because then I can just be skirt like. Well, that's where they're headed. Oh, okay. But they didn't have enough. They wouldn't have had enough fuel to make okay. it to Mexico. Yeah, so he was just. So like, he was like, "We're gonna stop and refuel in Nevada, and then we're gonna keep going, fully intending to jump off before they even got to Reno." Oh, to trick them. They find nothing on the plane. Uh, Cooper had jumped, and none of the five aircraft following it had seen it. Wait, hold on. Oh, it's the seventies. They had DNA though. Well, we'll get to that. It was time for an investigation. Obviously. <laughs> The FBI found 66 unidentified fingerprints on the aircraft. They also found his clip-on tie, the tie clip, and two of the parachutes. So he ripped that some bitch right off. One had been opened, and two suspension lines had been cut from the canopy. Eyewitnesses of those who had interacted with Cooper were interviewed, and a series of comp- composite sketches were developed. An Oregon man named D.B. Cooper, with a minor police record, was one of the first persons of interest. Of course he was, he was contacted by Portland police on the chance that he'd used his real name or the same alias, but was quickly ruled out. That didn't stop a local reporter, James Long, who was rushing to meet a deadline, from confusing the now-eliminated suspect's name with the pseudonym of the hijacker. So, he said his name was Dan Cooper, and then there's a suspect named D.B. Cooper. Ah, and then, so and that's then, how it and, got. Yep. And other news outlets then republished this error, and then the name D.B. Cooper couldn't be shaken. Legendary. So that's not even what he said his name was. Damn. It just associated with him. See, Dan is a... Hold on. Let me tell you something about myself. 
I'm smarter than what you think I am. Yeah, clearly. You let this southern accent fool you. But you're wrong. As usual. Well, you got away, or you were never found, so clearly you had something rattling around up there. My name is Dan, but the hoes call me Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> what? A more precise area to search for Cooper was difficult to define due to the fact that even a minuscule difference in estimates at the aircraft's speed, height, or environmental conditions would change the point of Cooper's landing uh, drastically. An important variable was the length of time he chose to remain in freefall, if he even pulled the parachute at all. And the crafts... And the craft's tailing, of course, didn't provide any help because no one saw anything visually or on their radars. They even conducted an experimental recreation of the flight pattern to try and narrow their scope. Initial extrapolations put Cooper's landing zone in an area of the southernmost points of Mount St. Helens, a few miles southeast of Ariel, near Lake Merwin. The counties of interest were the subjects of thorough searches. They didn't even see a guy in a parachute. Like, I feel like you would see someone coming down in a parachute. No, they didn't. That's why some people think that he never he didn't survive the fall because he never pulled the chute. Um, yes, he pulled it. Law enforcement searched large areas of the mountainous wilderness on foot and by helicopter. Oh, what if he was like, he pulls it, and then he like, when he's close <laughs> enough to the ground. <laughs> he pulls it, and when he's close enough to the ground, he just like rips it off. He just he just rips that some bitch off, so then he just falls down. <laughs> Is that the sound of him ripping? Yeah, that's the sound. He's just like, oh, he just rips it off. Oh, that'd be pretty ballsy. Then he just lands, and he runs. They even conducted door-to-door searches of local farmhouses. I don't know why that would, you know. Other search parties had patrol boats on Lake Merwin and Yale Lake. The FBI also coordinated an aerial search using an addition using additional planes and helicopters along the flight path. Shortly after the spring thaw in 1972, teams of FBI agents along with around 200 soldiers from Fort Lewis, as well as additional Air Force personnel, National Guardsmen, and civilian volunteers conducted another ground search of the two counties. Clark and Cowlitz uh, are the names of the counties, by the way. I feel like they would be. Those are the names. Over the course of 18 days in March and then another 18 in April, a marine salvage firm even used a submarine to search the depths of Lake Merwin. Ultimately, the search, which was considered to be the most extensive in U.S. history, uh, uncovered nothing. A month after the hijacking, the FBI distributed lists of the ransom serial numbers to financial institutions, casinos, racetracks, and other businesses that handled large cash transactions, and to other law enforcement agencies around the world. Northwest Orient even offered a reward of 15% of the money recovered. In early 1972, the serial number... Oh, my God. What's that? Who's, huh? Who's calling you? My dad. <laughs> Believe it or not. Should have answered him on the air. I'm not answering my dad. Dan, oh, my God. It's dad, Dan. Dad Cooper. No. Okay. Here's the thing, right? So, and I just thought about it. Landing in Vegas would be the perfect spot because that would be the perfect spot to... Get dirty money, flipping your money. You can go. Maybe. You know how the mob is, dog. Well, they think he jumped long before that. So really. long before, but he could have walked. Well, that's fair, I guess. Um, Northwest Orient offered 15% of the money recovered as a reward. In early 1972, the serial numbers were released to the general public. That same year, 
two men using counterfeit bills with the Cooper number successfully swindled $30,000 from a Newsweek uh, reporter in exchange for an interview with a man they claimed was the hijacker. Obviously he wasn't. Scammers. You can never, that's the one thing that you can never stop. You can always always count on a scammer. A good scammer. A good one. That was stealthy. I would have did the same thing. (laughs) Well, I think they got in a lot of legal trouble, but... You got thirty thousand out of it. In early nineteen seventy-three, the ransom money trouble is nuts. The ransom money was still missing. The Oregon Journal published the serial numbers again and offered one thousand dollars to the first person to turn in a ransom bill to the newspaper or any FBI office. The Post Intelligencer made a similar offer for five thousand dollars. The offers remained until Thanksgiving of nineteen seventy-four, but still none of the bills were found. In 1975, Northwest Orient's insurer, complying with an order from the Minnesota Supreme Court, paid the airlines on $180,000 claim of the ransom money. Really? Later analyses indicated that the original speculated landing zone was inaccurate. Scott, the pilot, who was flying the aircraft manually um, because of Cooper's speed and altitude demands, determined that the flight path was actually significantly farther east than assumed. Additional data indicated that the wind direction, which factored into calculations, was off by as much as 80 degrees. Still nothing significant was found. However, it wasn't until July 8, 2016, that the FBI announced that it was suspending active investigation of the Cooper case. So they've been actually looking. Until still. 2016. They were a- it was an active search. I so badly hope he's alive. Let's go over the physical evidence that we do know about, of which there are few things. In 1978, a placard with printed instructions for lowering the stairs of a 727 was found by a hunter near a logging road about 13 miles um, away from Castle Rock uh, and well north of Lake Merwin, but still within the basic flight path. He's like, I don't need this shit anymore. In February 1980, eight-year-old Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at a beachfront known as Tina Bar, about nine miles downstream from Vancouver and 20 miles southwest of Ariel. The child uncovered three packets of ransom cash as she raked the sandy riverbank to build the campfire. Okay, here it is. Let's do it. So, Dan Lane's injured. He's like, oh, I'm hurt. Okay. Oh, I'm hurt. Guess who comes and gets him? Tina from earlier. Tina comes up. Tina Mucklow? Yep. She's like, damn. She goes to her own bar. We did it. Sandbar, by the way. Yep, we did it. It's like, God damn. I knew you loved me, Tina. Let's go. That would be pretty insane. Let's fucking go. I guess that kind of make some sense why he was never caught because then uh, he was she, she would never rat on him. She'd be like, that doesn't look like him any, yeah. to any of the suspects. Picks him up. Let's go. Because Dan had to have inside me because you got to think about it this way. If Daniel Cooper did not have an inside person, man or woman, this wouldn't have worked. Well, there is thoughts that he did have some uh, assistance, but we'll get to that it, later. That wouldn't have worked. You can't just be like, I'm jumping off a plane, ha ha. Because you would have had to blow it up. Would you? You would have had to. If well, you don't apparently think he, apparently people, he didn't have to. This is 70s, dude. Nobody cared about their life. They would have tackled him. The ch- Come here, Dan. So this guy finds this kid finds three packets of ransom cash. Um, the bills had deteriorated considerably, but still remained bundled with rubber bands. 
FBI technicians confirmed that the money was indeed a portion of the ransom. Dan got bands. Two packets of $120 bills each and a third packet of 90 all arranged in the same order as they were when given to Cooper. Why would he? The money totaling uh, $5,800 in 1986... Oh, excuse me, totaling $1,500 or $5,800. Uh, that's how much it was, excuse me. Uh, yeah, that's in like 19- a million dollars back then. In 1980, that's not that much. In 1986, after negotiations, the bills were divided equally between Ingram and Northwest Orient's insurer. What? But the FBI kept 14 examples for evidence. Ingram sold 15 of the bills at auction in 2008 for $37,000. To date, none of the remaining 9,710 bills have been found. The little, eighth, the little eight-year-old? Yeah, he got bank. He got money after this? Uh, in 2017, a group of volunteer investigators uncovered what they believe to be, excuse me, possible evidence in what appears to be decades. Um, and what appears to be a decades-old parachute strap in the Pacific Northwest. This was followed later in August of 2017 with a foam piece suspected of being part of Cooper's backpack. The placard and the money, however, are the only confirmed pieces of evidence. And little has really been found out other than that. In late 2007, the FBI announced that a partial DNA profile had been obtained from three organic samples found on Cooper's tie. In 2001, excuse me, in 2001, but there is no evidence the hijacker was the source of the material. So it's difficult to draw firm conclusions from this. What about the drinks? The, that is actually addressed. They mixed the drinks up so they didn't know which one was his. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, they mixed the cups up. Then do all of them. Yeah, I, I guess they did You still scan all those because then you can start bringing back DNA that... Oh, that person was on the flight. That person was on the flight. I guess, yeah. And then you just pick the one who isn't on the flight anymore at the end. I guess they weren't that smart. What do you mean? That's like common sense. It's the 70s. They're on LSD. What the fuck? Like, police? I feel like police just stopped trying <laughs> and then started trying again post 9-11. The FBI also made a public file of previously unreleased evidence, including Cooper's plane ticket and composite sketches uh, and fact sheets. Well, they had DNA in the 70s, right? So they... It just took a while. It's different. And they, they talk that, that comes up, the stuff on the tie comes up later. Fuck the tie. The cuffs make sense. The FBI also disclosed that Cooper had chosen the older of the two primary chutes given him, and that from the two reserve parachutes, he chose a dummy, one that was unusable due to an inoperative ripcord intended for classroom demonstrations, despite there being clear markings identifying it as non-functional. He killed Dan. He used the other reserve parachute um, for what is assumed to be ties for the money bag and to secure it to his body. As witnessed by Mucklow, as she made her way uh, for the cockpit, um, that's what she, that's what she thinks she saw him t- um, cutting the parachute up and using it as ties. The FBI insists that their inclusion of an unworking parachute was an accident. Oh no, it's not. That was I'm not gonna lie. I said that I would have done that too. They're hoping that he just grabbed it and used that. Because I'd be like, one. look, if we don't get you, at least you're gonna be dead. Yeah, bud. You know, and for some stuff we'll get into later, they think that he wasn't actually that. Ex- there's potential that he wasn't actually very experienced. And think about it, that would be hilarious though if he did all this work just to pick the wrong parachute. Yeah, just dies. Just to be like, all right, here it is. In March, 
In March of 2009, the FBI disclosed that Tom Kay, a paleontologist, had assembled a team of civilian sleuths, including a scientific illustrator and a metallurgist. You were wild in 2009. The group, known as the Cooper Research Team, took another look at important components of the case using GPS, satellite imagery, and other newer technologies. So what did you find? They weren't able to find much new information so about the landing zone or the money, you but weren't. they were able to find and analyze hundreds of minute particles on Cooper's tie using an electron microscope. So that's a good job. You did a good job. Hold on. Let me check on you. Let me give you a pat on the back. Good job, Tom. Thank did you. Appreciate it. Then. So this is what I found, me being Tom K. Um, lycopodium spores, um, which probably came from a pharmaceutical product, um, were identified, as well as fragments of bismuth and aluminum. In November of 2011, K announced that particles of pure titanium, which was relatively rare in the 70s, had been found on the tie. In the 70s, titanium would only have been found in metal fabrication or production facilities or at chemical companies using it to store highly corrosive substances. Or in someone's nostrils. They suggested that Cooper may have been a chemist or a metallurgist or possibly an engineer or manager in a metal or chemical manufacturing plant, or even a company that re recovered scrap metal from those types of factories. In January of 2017, that's really recent. Yeah, yeah yesterday. Okay. Kay reported that rare earth minerals such as cerium and strontium, uh, excuse me, and strontium sulfide had also been identified among particles from the tie. One of the rare applications for such elements in the 1970s was Boeing's supersonic transport development project. My man. Suggesting that the possibility that Cooper was a Boeing employee. My man. Other possible sources of the material included plants that manufactured uh, cathode uh, ray tubes. Ray tubes. So what are the theories? Cooper appeared to be familiar with the Seattle area and may have been an Air Force veteran, especially when considering his knowledge of McCord. Some, though, speculated that Cooper may have just done it to prove that he could do it. Which I kind of think that's funny. Just be like, look, you think, what if he lost a bet? You think. I can't successfully hijack a Boeing. He's like, he's watching, all right, this is the scene. Watching a Dallas Cowboys game because he's from the South. He, that's, you know, that's truly conjecture. There's no, there's no, there's literally no proof that he was from the South. You're just, just assuming that. So he's like, oh, hey, Mickey, you think I can, you think, if you don't think right here. They're going to throw a touchdown. You're fucking wrong. And then they throw an interception. He's like, God damn it. I got to fucking get this plane. I got to hijack a plane now. I got to hijack this motherfucking plane. That's why he gets on another plane, goes to Seattle. So then everyone thinks he's from Seattle. And then he hijacks the Seattle plane. So FBI agents theorized that Cooper took his alias from a popular Belgian comic book series of the 70s featuring the fictional hero Dan Cooper a Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot who took part in numerous heroic adventures, including parachuting, because these comics were never translated to English or imported to the United States, there is speculation that he may have found them while on a tour of duty in Europe. The Cooper research team suggested that it's possible he was Canadian and had found the comics in Canada where they were also sold. He's like, these goddamn Europeans, eh? You get on my damn nerves. They also noted they that... comic books, though. They also noted that... And his demand for, quote, negotiable American currency was a highly specific phrase not really used. Uh, and witnesses also did not mention an accent, making it a likely possibility that he was from Canada. 
which has a very similar accent in a lot of parts to America. Yep, yep. Or the Pacific Northwest. Yep, Southern Canada. Evidence also suggested that Cooper was knowledgeable about technique, aircraft, and the terrain. It's speculated that he demanded four parachutes to force the assumption that he might compel one or more hostages to jump with him, thus ensuring that he would not get sabotaged equipment, which I think that's really brilliant. That is. I would have had people jump with me. He chose a 727-100 because it would be ideal for a bailout due to its aft air stair, but also high uh, aftward placement of the engines, which allowed a safe jump without a risk of immediate incineration by jet exhaust. It also had the ability to remain in slow, um, low-altitude flight without stalling, which was unusual for the time. Cooper was also familiar with how to control it and with important details such as the appropriate wind flap setting and typical refueling time. He also knew that the stairs would be lowered during uh, or could be lowered during a flight, which was never disclosed to civilian flight crews. And that the operation of these stairs could be done with a switch in the rear cabin without being overridden by the cockpit. Some of his knowledge was virtually unique to CIA paramilitary units. All right. Cooper also took the note back. That's why he's so suave. And wore dark glasses, which indicated that he had a certain level of idea about how to avoid identification. The jump is also considered to be quite perilous um, by high safety training um, and equipment standards of skydivers. And whether his jump was essentially a suicide is also a matter of dispute. An author of an overview and comparison of World War II bailouts and Cooper's believes a high chance of probability that he survived, but that he likely lost most of the money on the way down. How the money ended up at uh, Tina Bar is still a mystery. Some even speculate that he dumped it on purpose, knowing that he could never spend it without being caught. No. You don't think so? He didn't dump all of it. uh, That's fair. The Cooper research team... um, Teams careful planning, or they believe that the careful planning um, likely extended the timing, uh, likely extended to the timing of the events and his choice of attire. The FBI couldn't find anyone who had gone missing over that weekend, suggesting that he may have returned to his normal job. If you were planning on going back to work on Monday, then you would need as much time as possible to get out of the woods, find transportation, and get home. The very best time for this is in front of a four-day weekend like the one Cooper chose. Additionally, if he, ha- if he knew he had to hitchhike out of the woods, it could be reasonably assumed that, that it's easier to get picked up in a suit rather than casual attire. Yeah, true, because then people be like, who's this? F-? Well, honestly, I don't know if I would pick up a dude with a suit and sunglasses on. So this is what the Cooper research team is speculating. The FBI is skeptical of these assumptions, noting that Cooper lacked crucial skydiving skills and experience. Originally, they had thought that Cooper may have uh, even been a paratrooper, but Agent Larry Cooper, who was, out, who was head of the investigative team, said, We concluded that after a few years, this was simply not true. No experienced parachutist would have jumped in pitch black night, in the rain, with 200 mile per hour wind in his face, wearing loafers and a trench coat. It was simply too risky. He also missed that his reserve chute was only for training and had been sewn shut something a skilled skydiver would have checked. He also failed to bring or request a helmet, chose to jump with the older and inferior of the parachutes, and jumped into a negative 70-degree wind chill without proper protection from the cold. 
I'm not going to be honest with you. I would have checked anyway because if I'm jumping out of a plane, I want to know that I can make it. Yeah, maybe they maybe he did it on purpose because then he was like, they'll think that I took the reserve one and died. No. I don't think that's true either, but maybe. Wait, what if he took the reserve one? So you're saying he used the reserve one as the strings? No, I'm saying, well, the, well the he, he has four. So he used one of the reserve ones as uh, the strings for the money bag. He's got two main ones. He takes one of the main ones. He takes the older one, though. And then he takes the reserve shoe that is clearly not op- operational. Maybe he took the specifically took the, the older one and took the um, reserve shoe that was bad because uh, uh, because then he they could be seen that he had um, died. Yeah. But here's this. The FBI's like, we didn't we really did not mean to put Why that reserve. Why would you give someone two reserve shoes? Well, he asked for four. Um, but Why would you give him a reserve shoe? I think he asked for it that okay. way. Um the thing is the FBI's like, we didn't mean to put that fake one on there. How did they know the fake one was on there if he took it off then? Damn. That's probably something easily answered, but I just thought of it. You might get maybe, maybe Tina maybe Tina noticed it, or maybe maybe they did know. Who am I gonna replace you with? I already know, actually. Who's that? No comment. Okay, I'd I'd prefer it that way. Mm-hmm. Oh, you would prefer that happen? No, that I didn't know who it was. Oh, okay. The FBI has long speculated that Cooper did not survive the jump. The recovered money only raised more questions than it answered. Initial statements were founded on the assumption that the bundled bills washed freely into the Columbia River from one of its tributaries. An Army Corps of Engineer hydrologist noted that the bills had disintegrated in a rounded fashion and were matted together, indicating that they had been deposited by river action and, uh, as opposed to having been deliberately buried. That conclusion would mean that Cooper did not land near Lake Merwin or tributaries of the Lewis River. This does not explain the 10 bills missing from one packet or the fact that three packets would have remained together after being separated from the rest of the money. A physical evidence or a physical evidence was inconsistent with geologic evidence. Free-floating bundles would have uh, had to wash up on the bank within a couple of years of the hijacking, or the rubber bands would have deteriorated. But geologic evidence suggests that the bills had arrived at Tina Bar well after 1974, the year of a Corps of Engineer dredging operation on that part of the river. Geologist Leonard Palmer found two distinct layers of sand and sediment between the clay deposited on the riverbank by the dredge um, and the sand layer in which the bills were buried, indicating that the bills had arrived long after the dredging, uh, which likely suggested they were buried purposefully. And the Cooper research team later challenged Palmer's conclusion, citing evidence that the clay layer was a natural deposit. If that's true, then an arrival time of less than a year after the hijacking is likely, but still wouldn't explain how the bundles ended up there or where they came from. Many believe... Um, that he landed near Washugal Valley, uh, which has been searched repeatedly. Sure. But some investigators speculate that the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens may have destroyed any remaining physical clues. Damn. So how did the money get there? Well, the theories have, uh, are kind of all over. Some said that the money had been found elsewhere and brought to the riverbank and reburied. Um, the sheriff of Cowlitz County proposed that Cooper may have accidentally dropped some of the bundles on the air... Uh, on the uh, aft stair, um, and they blew away into the Columbia River. Again, some believe that he willingly dumped it, knowing that he could never spend it. That's so. That's beat that. No, no. I'm gonna. This is what I think. I think Dan jumps. He 
He's going down. He's like, fuck. It's nighttime. No one's going to see a guy in a parachute. If it's not a, like a bright parachute, which it probably was not. He lands. He couldn't keep all the money. I, I can't picture him holding on to all that money when he's jumping out of a plane. It's a lot. It's all in $20 bills. So yes. there's a lot of bills. So I can't picture him jumping out of a plane with all he should have asked in all hundos. Big big money Dan. That's people, what he should have been. People said that too. He should have been big he, money Dan. They're like, there's probably a reason that he requested it like that. Yeah. So he leaps out. He's losing. He's going to lose some of the money. Uh, a later suspect also said that he requested um, used $20 bills. That's weird. But So he lands and he's like, fuck. Goes on a run. Hits the high ray, gets picked up. The money lands that was in the you know air, because he's gonna land first because he's bigger. Money washes away. Dan's on the run. Dan's like, "Fuck! I can't use some of this money because knowing them, knowing the FBI, those motherfuckers did probably give me the money with can be traced. So shit, what am I gonna do? Trades it." Or gets it washed. Keeps it moving. Somewhere uh, in Costa here's Rica. What, here's what I was thinking. Drinking a Corona. If, this kind of goes along with the reburied thing, but if he, um, we already know he was super smart and did a lot of stuff to like protect his identity and all that yeah. stuff. And he, uh, as of what generally is known about the myth, he was never found. Um, maybe he buried it there on purpose, knowing that it's a possibility that it would be found to kind of draw people away from where he actually was. What if he's like, bury this money here, only some of it, and then me make it kind of weird, and then let me go to Florida or something, like on the totally opposite side of the country. Or he buried some of it to see if they would have, you know, found it. Maybe. And he's like, oh, the motherfuckers are still looking. Yeah. As a, to see if they're still looking. Yeah. He could have buried it, and like, let's see if they're still looking for him. Is the block still hot? They go and find He's like, oh. Let me get the fuck out of here. Okay, so I'll say one more thing before we wrap up this f- first part. All right, wrap me up. Um, it's that there was some questioning as the as the years progressed if they'd even be able to, to prosecute him yeah, for any of, of this stuff. Limitation on but the FBI has formally said that literally at any point, if anybody if they find anybody to be D.B. Cooper, that they will prosecute them to the fullest extent. Yeah, because... So, this is one of those ones where he basically slapped him in the face and said, fuck you, as he jumped out of the plane. He might as well have done the Marshawn Lynch, hold my dick, as he jumped out of the plane. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not going to lie. I would have done the same thing. You don't, you're not getting away with this shit. Just because you think, oh, shit, you know, you're suave. You're so, this fact that he was suave, he would have just been So a, you think he survived for sure? I think my heart wants me to think that he survived. Because of all the planning and all that, you would think that he would have thought that, oh shit. And maybe Tina didn't see what she thought she was seeing because it's a tense moment, you know. The guy's kind of cute. He's being nice to you, but you're like, he's he has a bomb on him. That's the thing that has me. I would have had to see more of the bomb. He can't just be like, oh, oh. Close it. Like I need to Probably see. Because maybe it was fake. That's what I'm saying. I think it was a fake bond. I think they didn't call his bluff. Because if you're going to go through all that just to like get money to jump off a plane, you're not gonna kill. You're not gonna blow a plane up. Like you're not going to, because you're gonna die too. 
you're not doing that. You're just going to be like, you know. So I think he was faking it. What I think is interesting is that. And it's the 70s. No one knows what bombs Is that like. like the sunglass thing. He took the note back. But I think it's, what I was thinking when I was reading that was like when I was doing the research was like, um, how come they just didn't look at like missing persons cases? And so that means he timed it so specifically that he was either went missing way before then or he went back to work. Because you imagine like hijacking a plane and then going back being to the work. infamous D.B. Cooper and then going back to your job the next day. My thing is, it's like the, like it's the cup thing. Take the cups with you. Oh, D.B. Cooper. Why would you have? take the card and the glasses? You leave the tie or you they found the tie later on. You take all that shit, but you leave, you drunk two cups of brandy. Bourbon. Bourbon. Did he smoke too? Yeah, he is. And he smoked. You have literally DNA from him smoking, did he, unless he ate the cigarette. Well, I think he. I guess that's true. What did he do with it? Is, is, is DNA left on cigarettes? What if he burns yes, them all up? Yes, because your he lip put, is on it. Some speculation that he was like a chain smoker and he smoked like eight cigarettes in the plane too. Because your lips are on it. You don't you, burn it up. You have to fucking put it out. And then what if he just mashed it up though? Yes, still, even if you have his DNA, you have his fingerprint. I guess maybe. Fucking police are. All right, so I'll that's, say it off air. That's all I got for this episode. On the second episode, will be about the suspects, of mm-hmm. which there are many, including and yourself. I am DB Cooper. Dan, I'm actually like 90 years old. I can see it. Wow, that hurts. Um, you just wipe the tears away. No, I'm. It's fine. Yeah, I did actually. Your fault. So thinks n- you're hot. next episode, next episode will be about the suspects um, and some of the more recent developments um, in the DB Cooper mythos. So, just like we say every time, if you want to join the club, you can do so by following us on Instagram and Twitter at Tom and Demir. Uh, also, you can join the club by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts it helps us show out flipboard. a lot flipboard i don't know if we're on flipboard uh, we should be yeah we should be um but yeah that really helps us show out if you write and review um but yeah that's all i gotta say do you have something you want to say yeah i mean dan here coming in here real fast uh landed i'm in costa rica right now i'm older now still got the bitches though as they say they call the hoes call me daniel you call me dan uh <laughs> Or DB, if you don't even get respect. Uh, man, my whole thing that I did, jumping off that plane and whatnot, as we all would say, God damn, that was fucked. Dan style. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>